everybody, and welcome to episode 161 of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, card games, and friends, but only as long as those friends play board games together. My name is Quentin Smith, and I'm joined by one of my friends who uh, has to play board games with me because it's his job. It's Tom Brewster. How's it going, Tom? I'm Tom Brewster, and I have no friends. Is that true? Nah, you're my friend, Quinns. But only because you play board games with me. Tom, ask me where I was last night. Where were you last night, Quinns? I was at Tully's Shocktoberfest, Europe's <laughs> largest collection of Halloween haunts. I Ooh. walked through a whole bunch of... Uh, I don't know how much you know about haunts. I found out about them uh, from an excellent documentary on Amazon called Haunters, The Art of the Scare. Um, but yeah, so you go to this park and then you enter haunted houses and those houses are absolutely rammed full of actors who jump out at you from crevices, darkness, smoke machines. Uh, it was a blast. It was it was the most fun I've had in Yonks. Well, so hold on. Like, the houses aren't... You know, they're not really haunted. They're no, they're actors. all made out of, like, you know, plywood and, you know, filled with uh, cheap sort of... Um... So they're not even houses? Well, no, it's more like a haunted sort of labyrinth that's been constructed by some workers two weeks prior to the festival beginning. In a, yeah. in a park? Yeah, but they all have things. That's nuts. I did one that was, like, called the Chop Shop, and it was like a garage full of angry mechanics with chainsaws. That was very good. I went uh -huh. into one called Coven, which had lots of witches, and it was kind of like Hemwick Charnel Lane from Bloodborne, if you've played that video game. Uh, I did one that was like a classic Victoriana house with lots of people who were pretending to be possessed and they jumped out at my wife and she screamed so loud they then followed her for the entire duration of the haunted house because the actors are just trying to get screams out of people. So if you scream, it's kind of like sharks. They smell fear and uh, and follow you around. That's so... When you say you you did them or you completed them, did you like? Do you get a high score if you don't scream? No. Well, no. If you, I discovered halfway through the end, if you don't scream, you're not really getting the full experience. You need to pretend to be a bit scared, and then the actors will be like, "Ooh," and then they'll really start like interacting with you and 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 saying things to you, and it's all delightfully creepy. Look, this is a podcast about board games. I just really wanted to talk about that because I'm still buzzing from the night before. <laughs> um, but now I've got that sort of out of my system, I could reveal that on this podcast we're going to be talking about some absolutely terrific games we're going to be talking about brian baru uh, a game about trying to be the king of ireland and you're going to do that using cards uh tom and i are going to be talking about a couple of games that we've done uh, positive reviews of recently detective city of angels a game about being just the worst detectives in la in the 1940s uh and kabuto sumo a game that definitively proves that circles are deceptive and not to be trusted and we're going to close the podcast by talking about a terrific new game mind management uh which is a game that asks what if there was a, a secret oh goodness how do you even begin to describe mind management what if there was a secret what if there was a secret the board game what if there was a secret kind of cia group of people who were psychics and they were running around town recruiting people and you had to locate them psychically it's not it's not really a game about psych it's a hidden movement game that's it's a game about a tracking someone game. down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's very good though it's very good but there is some psychic element but we'll get to that later yeah 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 that's good tom that's teasing that content for later i love yes. it love it we should we should also mention that right at the end of the podcast we're going to get into some slightly spoilery territory for mind magmut 
uh, because it's got spoilers in the box. But don't worry, we'll mark that out if you're spoiler-averse. Yeah, just don't scrub straight to the end of this podcast. I don't know why you would, but don't, In, in your don't. sheer excitement to, to hear us talk about my management, do not scramble to the end and just listen to, to those words. You've got to get through a whole lot of, of, of pod quagmire first love it let's drop them straight splat into the swampy pod di- discussion of brian the Drew. swampy pod bog let's get <laughs> let's get all mucky in the swampy pod bog and play some brian burrow you saved me there and i love you for it so the first game we're going to talk about on this podcast is Brian Baru, designed by Pierre Sylvester and published by Osprey Games. And this is kind of an unholy merger of an area control game and a trick-taking game, where you're trying to work out who's going to be Ireland's best new boy. I don't really know who Brian Baru is historically, I just know that he's on the cover and looks sick i want to say he Um, united ireland and repelled the vikings and i'm pretty sure he repelled the vikings not totally sure he united ireland how many times did he get married Ooh, (laughs) good question less times than happens in brian baru the game yes that's true uh so to explain the way that this works is that each round you're going to have a hand of cards and those cards are going to be played into a sort of trick-taking game uh essentially these are just rounds where you pick a card to play from your hand and the highest card in the suit that's been chosen by the first player wins the trick so if the player leading the trick played a red 11 and everyone else played lower colors or cards then they'd lose and the person who played the red 11 would win because they're the highest card in the trick. And Brian Brew's reward for winning a trick in this game is to place one of your little discs onto this map of Ireland, taking control of a little part of one of its many different regions. So each one trick will place a new disc and you want to have more discs than anyone else in each region to score points at the end of the game. If you've got a majority, you're going to get a big chunk of points, which is nice and simple. However, it's a little bit more involved than that, because if you don't win a trick, you'll get a bundle of bonuses on the bottom half of the card you used to lose. Uh, you'll only get those bonuses if you lose. You will not get them if you win. And they'll sort of just push you up on all these ancillary systems that sit around the side of the board. So one kind of bonus might push you up on the marriage track, and you'll get to be the husband or wife of the eligible bachelor for that round if you reach the top, and they'll give you bonuses, which is pretty cool. Uh, The other kind of little bonus track is the Vikings track. You can kill Vikings, and the person who kills the most gets cumulatively more points over multiple rounds. You kill the most in one round, you get one point. You kill the most in two rounds, you get two points, and so on and so forth. But the person who kills the least Vikings in each round just gets dunked on. They have one of their cities taken over by bad Vikings. Only if there are Vikings left, which is really foxy and deeply irritating because it means that you (laughs) everyone wants to kill vikings because they don't want to have the least but then if you all succeed at killing all of the vikings that round then nobody even needed to have the not least anyway because there are no vikings left to threaten whoever killed the least vikings am i helping with your teach tom am i helping that's but no that was that was a system that i completely missed out on in my teach The, the the listeners will be more informed and entertained lovely the last uh, bonus track you've got is the church, which lets you make some of your cities better than others. You can pop a little ring around them, which makes them worth double for the purposes of the area control game. And there's also a little bonus that lets you spend uh, coins, which you'll be collecting during the game, to sort of extend your control via little roads that are printed on the board. But these roads aren't always contained within one region, so you might put something in 
I can't think Connacht. of a part of Ireland now. In Connacht. And then you'll have a little road going to another part of Ireland. What's another part of Ireland? South. We, well, there's a lot of Gaelic on the board, so I don't know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> I thought you were going to go from Connacht to South Island. <laughs> I swear um, there's a South... Uh, no, there's a South something that, that, that I couldn't read. Yeah. Um, I recommend that we escape the bog of pronunciation and clamber onto the safe ground of talking about the game mechanics. Yeah, let's get onto that scaffolding. Um, so, I don't want to be too harsh on Brian Brewery because I feel like The King is Dead, Pierce Sylvester's other sort of like big hit game, only started revealing its like true depths to me after playing it a bunch. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I'm not immediately excited to dip into Brian Brewery again, despite being excited for it in like a bunch of ways beforehand, right? I was very excited to play it as well. Yeah, I really like the packaging. It's got this kind of not not minimalist exactly, but just very clean and shiny uh, design with lots of spot UV and the the setup of like you're going to be playing a trick-taking game, which is something I like, and then using that to to sort of like develop your control of a board is actually really neat. I like the idea of competing with ever, uh, other people during this trick-taking to try and get to the top of the marriage track because all of these ancillary systems are, are quite devious because none of them are like, oh, you need to hit this certain level. You only ever need to have more than your opponents, which in a trick-taking game where you don't have a ton of control, because if people haven't played a trick-taking game, this is a genre which is kind of interesting for how difficult it is to uh, to to do what you want to do. Tom, this might be crazy, but I've started to think trick-taking as a bit like a really extended dice roll. And I'm worried that makes me sound like I've lost my marbles. But what I mean is that like in a trick-taking game, you can have ideas of what you want to achieve and how you're going to go about achieving it. But routinely, things just will not shake out how you expect. You'll drop a card thinking, oh, I'll definitely win this trick, and you won't. Um, and so when you have this like slippery trick-taking mechanic with ancillary systems, as you describe them, that are also a bit slippery, where you don't want to have the least Vikings, but also it might not matter. You want to get married, but also if you don't get married, then that can be good as well, because if you get up the track really high, but then someone gets even higher, you actually get a secondary reward. So I was really interested to see how this kind of hybrid mutant game would work. And I I don't want to say that it doesn't work, because I do agree with you. I think we gave The King is Dead a, a poor shake, but I'm not super inclined to play Brian Brew again. I think it's weird that actually having had this conversation now, just thinking about systems again, I am... Like, when you just said how the box is presented, how the game looks, it has the air of a game that is kind of classic, but, like, it's what I want a classic-looking game to look like 100%. Now, yes. I think if you were republishing a classic Euro game from, like, 2005, if it looked like Brian Baru, if you had the same art design and artist, I, I, can't, I can't imagine myself being happier. I really like how they made it look. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gorgeous uh, in a very sort of, like, classic and crusty way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think It's that... handsome. How about that? It's not gorgeous. Ooh. It's handsome. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> but, um... Like, I do think that there is a really, there's a lot of really nice barriers to making this something that initially I thought I didn't have that much control over. But then the more we played, the more I realized you can kind of game some systems in in some fun ways. For example, right, like on those tracks, let's say that you want to get married in a round and you put all your resources into getting married, but someone is just a little bit better at getting married than you are. 
they'll win the bonus for that round, but you keep your progress on that track. So you can sit pretty sort mm. of like relatively high up. And thinking about the psychology of like the game generally and thinking about if a player has some marriage cards in their hand, whether they will use those to try and pip you from your post or whether they think that there's uh, enough of a chance they'll manage to do that or if they think that it's not worth pursuing. I think that's that's an interesting little push and pull on every single track, right? Is that if you know someone has advanced progress on it, do you want to even go down that road if you have a bunch of the cards of that kind in your hand yeah and i think that there's a really lovely arc to each round of the game where you start off with almost no information about who has what other than you know what cards are in the game mm -hmm. and then you gradually reveal more and more information as the round goes on so that you know in your last few cards you have a lot of control over the decisions which keeps those decisions really crunchy right like when you have five options to choose from that's a lot of you know thought you can put into what you do on your turn and then as you narrow the options down the decision actually becomes harder because you have more information to calculate it from i think that's super juicy there i you know at the risk of totally alienating our audience um i don't know if anything in brian baru is crunchy for me because i associate the word crunch with like where you know calculation meets prediction and it, it like you can really sink your teeth into it I would not totally kindly describe the strategy as Brian Baru as as soupy. Like I don't, mm. I can't, I don't know what my opponents are holding. I don't know what cards I'm going to receive next round. Even if I put a card in, I don't know if I'm going to unexpectedly win or lose a trick. I don't know which town we're going to be fighting for control over next. Um, so it's a lot of kind of guesswork that only really started to frustrate me in future rounds when like i did i got so burned by um not having uh by having the least vikings in the first round and losing a town a town that was really important to me um that the next round i was like okay i'm definitely gonna engage with this viking mechanic more but in the next round i just didn't receive any cards of the red suit like i, I which meant that i ended up having the least vikings for a second time but with no, and that was completely out of my hands However, because I'm complaining about this game a lot, a mechanic I did really like was how money worked in the game. You start the game with a bit of money, and then if you win tricks with like really low numbers or using some other cards, you can acquire more money. And money is spent basically extending your towns across roads, or if you win a trick with a really high-valued card, so which is kind of a sure thing, the card actually says, okay, you can have a town, but you have to pay a bit of money. And what I really liked about this is if you ran out of money, the game penalized your victory points in a way that was so harsh. I found myself <laughs> continually asking myself like, oh, I could go down to no money, but then if something unexpected happens with the card play, I could, you know, I could end up in debt. That would be horrible. Yeah. Um, which was a question I did enjoy asking myself, like how risky was I willing to be? And there's a lovely rub as well with the fact that you might be holding a really high card that is a sure bet for winning a trick, but the bonuses that you get for not winning a trick with that card are significantly bountiful, right? Yeah. Like if you have the, you know, the 25 red, the highest card in the game or whatever, you play that card and deliberately don't win a trick with it, it feels like a waste because that's a surefire place of, you know, way to put controlled markers on the board. Yeah. But the game rewards you by giving you a raft of other bonuses if you play it in that way as well. But then sometimes you might end up with a situation where you're left with that card. It's one of the last cards you pick. So you win a trick, but you don't want to win that trick, yes. even though you've saved your highest card till last. And there's some foxy stuff in there, but... You're right when you describe it maybe as a little bit soupy. I was crunching pretty hard in that game, and I felt like only maybe half the time was the crunch 
adequately rewarded. Yeah. Although maybe it was ultimately rewarded because I won the game. You did win the game. <laughs> you you played you played well. You played well. But I guess for me, as much as I was excited to try this experiment, trick taking is a genre that defines itself to me as being very like loose. And I don't know if that sits tremendously comfortably with a game with such like I don't know. I'm used to losing trick-taking games and that kind of being funny. It's a genre I associate with laughter. But for whatever reason in Brian Brew, it's not funny when you, you're really pushing to get married and someone else gets married ahead of you. It's not funny when you I lose think a town. That is the, I think that is the funny funniest part of the game. If I were to point to the comedy gold in Brian Brew, it's really, really, really wanting to marry Estrid, but someone else just racing up the track and being like, no siree. Estrid's, Estrid's Magal. Well, okay, then what about, you know, like you fight really hard to control, you know, Northeast Ireland and get the area control bonus and then the trick taking slips out of your hands and you just lose control of that area. Yeah, for, that's, that, that's, it's not very that's funny, a bad, that's you know, because you that's put work into that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I would be, I would be okay with playing Brian Brew again, but for me, it was less than the sum of its parts. I would rather play a good area control game or a trick taking game. Whew. Which means I've, so that was, that was kind of downbeat. So, oh no, I've, I said that with a sort of like downward intonation to allow you to say something with an upward intonation before we move on to the next games. So, go oh. on. Well, um, Brian Baru! <laughs> before we get on to mind management, Tom and I published a couple of video reviews on the Shut Up and Sit Down YouTube channel this week. I published a video review of the excellent Detective City of Angels, published by Van Ryder Games. Uh, a beautiful game covered in gorgeous illustrations from the one and only Vincent Dutre, uh, where players are competing homicide detectives trying to figure out who murdered someone, why they did it, what the murder weapon was, and most importantly, uh, fighting against LA traffic because driving around town takes absolutely ages. <laughs> and also, this is my favorite line in the review, when you buy Detective City of Angels, you go from owning presumably zero plastic fedoras to 32 plastic fedoras. <laughs> um, it's it's really a terrific game. And actually, um, doing the video review gave me an opportunity to, uh, to talk a little bit about Sherlock Holmes' Consultant Detective. Consultant Detective is a game that Shut Up and Sit Down really pushed and, and advertised and talked about a long time ago. But I think in my video review, it might have thrown some people off because what Consultant Detective isn't always is super fun. I worry I made it seem really fun when actually what it is is like cerebral and fascinating and challenging and unique but also, it's like literally hours of reading in an attempt to solve a very, very, very difficult logic puzzle. I will say that me and my friends watched that Shut Up and Sit Down review oh no. back in the day oh no. and bought Sherlock Holmes Consultant Detective. And, yeah, you know, we, we definitely enjoyed it, but it was referred to as Essay Writing Simulator by that group. <laughs> yeah, so I think for anyone who got burned by my Consultant Detective review, which I maintain is a terrific experience for one or two players, you know, sat with a, uh, you know, a, a glass of scotch and a willingness to spend hours not making Sherlock Holmes <laughs> make you look like an idiot. Um, but Detective City of Angels is probably what people wanted when they imagined solving a mystery. The mysteries are easier, there's less time to get lost, and the game resides less in trying to crack, you know, the clues left in like pages and pages and pages of writing. And it's more in trying to um, cut the corners of the mystery, you know? You could easily solve it by asking a ton of questions, but because you're in a race with the other detectives, you're thinking, I'm pretty sure this person did it, so I'm going to skip talking to them. I'm going to talk to other people to try and get the proof, or I'm going to search for the murder weapon. It's just a blast. Um, so it's it's a competitive 
detective game. Yes, it is. Um, and That's nuts. Tons of the mechanics. But everyone, it, it makes absolutely no sense. You're all homicide detectives who share absolutely no working with one another at all. <laughs> and if you find evidence by like searching a house or a suspect, you put that evidence in your pocket and only you know what it is until exactly three days later, you are legally obligated to enter it as evidence at a police precinct, at which point it becomes public to everybody. But It sounds like you're more like bounty hunters. Oh, it makes no this, sense. Uh... But it, it's just, you're not... you. You are maybe homicide detectives who are all competing for a promotion and all hate each other. Like, <laughs> that is maybe a way to look at it. Also, like, I talk a tiny bit about um, whether it's uh, propaganda as well. Because people are questioning um, the value of having a lot of fiction that paints, you know, the police as, like, a, a, an infallible or, or, or deeply sympathetic uh, sort of body, when actually that's not a lot of people's experience of them if, for example, you are a person of colour. Um, so... Uh, Detective City of Angels is interesting because you do play police, but my goodness, you are awful police. You are threatening innocent <laughs> people all the time. You are bribing your way to solutions in some cases. You are beating people up. It's it's more film noir than it is uh, propaganda. It's, it seems to do what Van Ryder generally does, which is that relishing in the muck of schlock. Exactamundo. Um, being something that's kind of so divorced from any reality that it's hard to sort of pin it down as being necessarily one way or the other, I guess. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear really good things about their upcoming game, um, Final Girl or The Final Girl, which is a solo game where one player acts as the final girl in a horror movie trying to run away from some kind of axe murderer or slasher uh, to collect the items that she needs to make a last stand and kill them in the way that all <laughs> horror movies end. Uh, I've heard that it's great, it certainly looks gorgeous, and it's super within Van Ryder's game's wheelhouse because it's it's schlock and they're pretty good at schlock, Tom, as well. Oh we've discovered in the last year uh but do you reckon i'll get your copy of detective city of angels and have a similar experience with it as i did with hostage negotiator career is it one of those boxes that tells exciting enough stories that it deserves to be shared around like that uh ooh. <laughs> you know candidly and let this be the highest praise that i could give a game I, I think I think I want to keep it, Tom. I don't think I want to give it to you. Um, I might lend it to you briefly, but um, no, I, I want I, I want this in my house for a long time. You're going to treasure it. I, I treasure I treasure it right now. I'm, I'm looking at the box <laughs> and I'm thinking, I like that box. It's a long, beautiful box full of beautiful components. And I say full again, beautiful fedoras. 32 of them. 32. <laughs> uh, but Tom, you reviewed Kabuto Sumo recently. Yeah. And I feel like this is, we're just constantly going to be locking horns on this one until the end of time. But I did. I did a review of Kabuto Sumo against the site's better judgment because Quinn's <laughs> doesn't like it very much. And I am sort of attracted to it in a way that I can't quite describe. In fact, I, I'm not... It's not a game that necessarily I adore. I didn't recommend it necessarily. I just... I recommended it but didn't recommend it, if that makes sense, uh, in the video. But... It's one that I feel confident in talking about positively because so many people that I've showed it to have been like, this is the greatest game ever made. <laughs> this is hands down the best thing I've ever put my hands on. And I just think there's so much room in what we're doing to like lose sight of the fact that sometimes dexterity games especially, but also other games, can just be such joyful objects to put in front of people who are new to the hobby or don't play that many games. And Kabuto Sumo absolutely fills that role. It's a delightful little game. And if you've not seen the video... I'd encourage you to check it out. It's quite short. It's a game about pushing little bugs on a log, uh, trying to do bug wrestling. Can I be catty for a second? 
you may if permitted. You, if you were to leave a fidget spinner on your table and your housemates hadn't seen one before, wouldn't they have also been equally interested? You know, like, isn't Kabuto Sumo, like, straddling the line between a game and an office toy? In the review, I talk about the fact that it is a toy. Fundamentally, Kabuto Sumo is, more than anything else, it has toy factor for days. But I guess the difference is a fidget spinner is something that you would do, you would pick up and you would flick it and be like, cool, I now know what that thing does. Kabuto Sumo is similar, right? That's how I feel about Kabuto Sumo, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that I... The fact that people would pick it up, play it, and then want to play it again sure. and again and again and would just enjoy it that much, that often. And the fact, I mean, it's derivative to call it, you know, the equivalent to a board game fidget spinner. Because, no, like, I'm being, fundamentally... Sorry, I'm being a complete jerk. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, because I, I, I enjoy this rivalry you've set up and I'm trying to uh, to inhabit it. I think we need more shut up and sit down rivalries. I think that's when we produce the most fun content that we have, especially because initially in the script, I was going to make a sort of Quinton Smith robot out of cardboard and then obliterate it. Um, (laughs) But then, and then maybe make peace with it by stitching it together with sellotape and and, and plasters. Um, But I just, I just destroyed my laptop instead. Oh, really? Okay. And I didn't destroy it, don't worry. It's okay. still it's still alive. It's still alive and Glad to hear it. Unfortunately, you and I aren't going to be able to disagree about the final game we're talking about on this podcast because I think it's fair to say we both think it's ruddy excellent. Nice segue. Boom. In there. Right. So this is Mind Management, designed by the talented Jay Comier and Sen Fung Lim, uh, published by Off the Page Games and Matigo and some other people because board game publishing is complicated. Um, and first, most important thing, Mind Management is spelt Mind M-G-M-T, like the music band MGMT. Uh, I'm going to get sued by Spotify. Oh my goodness, the spiders are going to find that. (laughs) Book us with a cease and desist. But it's also the game of the graphic novel of the same name. Well, actually, the comic is called Mind Management. Well, I mean, the comic is called Mind MGMT. The game is technically called Mind MGMT colon the psychic espionage quote unquote game. Um, (laughs) Which is very funny. But what you need to know about the comic is it imagines kind of uh, a sort of spy versus spy battle between psychics. There's an invisible group of psychics you know changing how the world works and then the com- the graphic novel follows the kind of rogue agents who are rebelling against them and trying to take them down um, with all kinds of ridiculous psychic powers um the way the board game works then is it's set in a city and you've got one player who is moving invisibly through the city trying to recruit uh potential psychics to their uh their devastatingly uh, powerful agency And the other players, and this can be one player controlling four characters or two players controlling two characters each. Basically, there's a team of four characters which will be controlled by one to four players who are running around town trying to find clues of where this person went. Now, we're not going to get too into the weeds of how mind management works here because we're going to, well, I have decided I'm absolutely doing a video review of this. But on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a couple of things that wouldn't necessarily make it into the video review. Um, there's going to be spoilers in a little bit, but to start with, um, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to Tom about the fact that, Tom, you said that you felt really uncomfortable playing hidden movement games, um, and do you want to give a super brief explanation of what they are and why they made you uncomfortable prior to mind management? 
Sure. So hidden movement games as a genre are kind of what they say on the tin. They're games in which one player has their movement hidden from the rest and the other players have to find out where that player is by using deduction. The game will often give you lots of different tools to accomplish that deduction, but generally that's the sort of the basis of most of them. And the reason that I didn't enjoy them is because they rely on a couple of things. Like, for example, any hidden movement game Everyone needs to understand the rules completely fully, otherwise the experience could easily be void. Because you're making deductions based on exactly how the hidden character can move, if someone doesn't understand those rules or gets them wrong, you could be making deductions based on false information and have an unfair experience. But that's much of a muchness. The thing that I find more frustrating or I found more difficult with hidden movement games was the fact that there is so much emphasis placed on one person to make the game interesting. Yes. If you're playing a five-player game of mind management, or, well, mind management is maybe the exception to this rule, which is why I maybe like it so much. But if you're playing a game of Fury of Dracula, for example, it's sort of Dracula's job to make the game entertaining for the other players, in the sense that you have to be good enough at the hidden movement part to keep the chase fresh and exciting. And a lot of my experiences with hidden movement games, I was placed as the hidden character, and then just completely messed up, and the game was over in like 25 minutes, and they found me instantly, and I felt really quite bad (laughs) Um, and that's combined with the fact that these games generally as part of their sort of as a point of pride are anxiety generators in the sense that the player who is being hunted all of the stress is placed on them to some extent as the players who are hunting sort of collectively deduce where they are and you can hear them talking about where you are you can hear them Uh, having ideas and theories and sharing their schemes and you're there with your pen trying to work out where you should move next and really sweating over the decision and I found myself consistently in those games finding the mere act of writing where I'm going or looking at the board (laughs) inherently quite stressful yes I don't think my management fixes all of that and makes them like you know washes away and makes those games palatable for people who find that experience really anxiety inducing it's still at the end of the day is a hidden movement game but it's the first one that i have unequivocally just loved every second of playing so i think i know why mind management tends to work so well and be a little bit less stressful and i think it's because the way the game is designed means no matter how incompetent the person you know who's invisibly running around town and hiding is it's almost bloody impossible to find them. Like, you, there is so much work that goes into it. So it, this, I honestly, when I first read the manual for mind management, I thought it didn't sound fun at all. So the way it works is the board, and we haven't even talked about the incredible art design of this game, which is it's gorgeous. initially, I'll be honest, totally repulsive. And then the more time I spent with it, <laughs> the more I, I felt that I was just looking at like this paradigm-busting new and brave way of designing a game. So, um, I mean, you'll see in the video review, of course. But the board is a city, but with features that pop out in vivid color. Like, there are five big, colorful palm trees. There are five buses. There are five big coffee shops that are advertised by the same weird, giant, floating coffee cup. So, the board (laughs) is like all these faded buildings, and then all of these almost, like, grossly vivid features. But the way it works is for the hidden movement person running around, they are trying to... Three of those features are features that if they touch, then they get recruit, they recruit psychics, basically. And getting these recruits is how you win the game. 
And we really don't have time here to get into all the nuts and bolts of how the team of deducers um, figure out where this invisible player is. But like, no matter the competence level, there is a certain barrier of deduction you have to do to even begin to find them. And I think that takes up so <laughs> takes so much pressure off the hidden mover because it means the game is never going to be like less than you know, like, it's always going to be like at least 30 minutes long and it's never going to be longer than an hour. It's always going to be hard work for the people to deduce because I think the thing we, we have found every time that we've played it is that you'll be working out exactly where the recruiter was on turn six when you're on like turn nine. Oh, it's so dispiriting, feel... yeah. <laughs> you always feel so many steps behind them. And I think you were saying that you've heard, and it definitely holds true of this game, that it's a game where both sides feel like they're losing at all times. Uh, because as yes. the recruiter, you feel like everyone is so close to catching you. And as the uh, agents or the as the deducers, you feel like there you've got literally no bearing on where they are whatsoever yes. but i want to talk about something really specific about why i think i actually really like my management and i think it's because of the note taking in this game okay and this is so this is a lifesaver for the seeking team um and this is a bit of a tangent but in life uh, generally i get very sort of easily overwhelmed it's one of my many fatal flaws um, i live by <laughs> i live by lists um so the way that i a good example of this is the way that i cook is i have every single ingredient out on the counter in exactly the portions that i'm going to use them in before i even start because i hate the feeling of having something changing in the pan while i'm faffing like dicing an onion or something mm. right i i don't like floating information is the best way to put it like i don't like things being these little strands of paper that are sort of whiffing around my head i want to have everything nailed down um and i think that those dry erase tokens in the game so it comes with these tiny little brain tokens that you could just write whatever information you want on those tokens act as nails for those snippets of information they just hammer them onto the table and make sure that my thinking isn't all contained in my head it's all splayed out onto the board and the fact that the game has a limited number of them means that they'll force you to hold sort of the right amount of information in your brain. You can't do so many that it becomes in and of itself an overwhelming board to look at, although you made a pretty good stab at it at the last uh... game we played. <laughs> but then there's that combined with the fact that the way the recruiter moves is so locked down and governed by very strict rules makes it easy on both sides. It's easier for the people to find him. It's easier for the recruiters to make decisions because when you're faced with the best of two bad options, it's quite a simple process on which you should take. I just, I think there's so many barriers to enjoying hidden movement games for me. And this one sort of is the most effortlessly enjoyable version of that game. And it then gets more complicated the more you play it, which I also love. But I don't know when we're going to get into that. I think I think now's the time. I think you should play the spoiler klaxon. And then you can put a klaxon in, in this part Thank and the you. other. You can do that. And attend the spoiler disco. <laughs> spoiler. Disco. Spoiler. Disco.
because this is where we're going to talk about mind management's shift system. So in the video review of this game we're going to do, we'll talk about how the system works and why you should be excited. But in this podcast segment right now, we're going to be revealing what's in some of those first shift packs. What are you talking about, Quinns? Well, mind management comes with no less than 14 little expansions and a way to open them that it calls the shift system. Basically, when one of the side loses, like for example, the deducers, they get to pop open an expansion to play with in the next game that exclusively benefits them. So it's really exciting to, well, it serves so many purposes. First off, it, the game encourages you to get to grips with the basics before it starts layering more and more and more and more layers onto it. Second, the side that loses, which is dispiriting in an asymmetric game, knows that next game they can get a little bonus. And third, of course, you're getting an expansion. The game is constantly changing. Because of the shift system, no two games of mind management you play will be alike. So that's a little basis of the system and we're just going to be talking about the shift system for the remainder of this podcast, so if you don't want spoilers, stop listening now. But if you are okay with us spoiling the first two, well, the the first, mm, oh, we haven't decided what we're going to talk about. Should we talk a bit about the first packet from each side? Does that sound fair? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, spoilers be here, abort now. Uh, Tom, would you like to talk about the horrific object that is found in the uh, first chip pack for <laughs> the uh, the hidden for the player who is doing the hidden moving? It's it's truly forbidden. <laughs> it's so cursed. <laughs> I think that was a real moment of like seeing this object was when I was like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to see what every everything else is because if this is the first one straight out the gate. I have no idea what is going to be in the rest of the packets. Basically, it's actually quite simple. The first object you get if you lose as the recruiter, the benefit that you get is a clue token, which looks like any of the other clue tokens that you'll place on the board when people ask about features. So they might ask, oh, have you been to any birds? And then you have to put a little foot on one of the birds you've, you've visited on the board. It's exactly the same as one of those, but on the underside, it has a little uh, a DB, uh, which I don't know what that stands oh, for. Oh, decoy bomb, I think decoy bomb dummy boy uh, which you put down to confuse people because you do not have to put it on a feature that you visited so you can put it literally anywhere and throw them off and players can then investigate that foot and find out whether or not if it's a decoy or not but even then you could put that foot on something that you have visited it's so worst uh, and, agonizing and like the, until you find the dummy foot as the investigators you any foot could be the dummy foot which means every single piece of information you get is like well okay so you know the the hidden mover has been here unless they haven't should we look at that foot do we have time no okay <laughs> are we just gonna sit not trusting any of the data we get forever uh it's and that, then that is the thing is is you simply do not have enough time to check every single foot so that you know like i don't think so far we've had a situation where someone has even flipped over the dummy foot to find out if it's if it is oh no that happened in the first game where uh where your friend uh, uh placed the foot and i had an inkling it was the dummy foot and i ran over to it and checked and it was the dummy foot and it felt like you know, cutting off one of the recruiter's hands, finding that dummy foot so early. I was I was so delighted. But that's not all, because <laughs> that first shift pack also includes a new playable character for the recruiter. Um, because, oh, there's a whole mechanic in mind management where the recruiter picks who they are, but um, out of a list of characters, but the team hunting them doesn't know who they are. And so mm. you don't know what their special power is and might never find out what their special power is, depending on how they play. 
And basically, I'm not going to get into it, but it adds a magician who's a jerk. You know, it, <laughs> you know when it adds a character called Standard, really. the magician, you're like, this is going to be annoying, isn't it? And sure yeah. enough, yeah, they can teleport all the way across town um, as long as they move from a feature to a matching feature. It's the worst. Shall we talk about the second recruiter one as well? Because I think that that's pretty fun. Uh, yes. Okay. Oh, Let's... go on. Okay, okay, you okay, okay, to. okay, okay. You've twisted my arm. So the second uh, recruiter power that you unlock, uh, if you lose twice as the recruiter, is the dream... I forgot its name. The dream stepper? I, I want to say I want to say dream walker, but I believe you and I referred to it as dream daddy. Uh, we Well, we definitely referred to it as something more vulgar than that as well. Um, oh, did we? Okay, I've honestly forgotten. Quince, we called it the Quince, we called it the dream. Dead. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, so the way that this works is also one of those just like slightly mind blowing things. So during the game, the seeking team will be asking about those feet that you put on the board. That it's called a reveal, I believe, which lets you know exactly when the recruiter was at that location. The dream. Uh, Dream <laughs> I was gonna say dream. The dream walker is a new mechanic which locks off that reveal action until you've found the dream walker. What's the dream walker? It's a little piece that the recruiter knows the exact location of on the board. They start by marking it on any one of the squares. But the way that you find it is by placing these tokens. It's so they're so janky and hard to describe. Imagine you know Cassandra from Doctor Who the sort of lady that was just a big slab of skin. It looks like that on a circular token with two weird fleshy arrows pointing <laughs> out in two directions. Yes. Like but the two hands kind of, of a dreamy clock. And weird. If you imagine, yes. a, imagine a clock pointing at 12 and 9. So it's got that full. Imagine 3 o'clock on, on a clock. With a face, yeah. Yeah, with a face slap bang in the middle. You put those on the intersecting like vertices of the board to create a square in which the dream walker is located. So the way that this works is that throughout the game, you're sort of narrowing this square, making it smaller and smaller and smaller, cutting the board into these slices where you know where that dream walker is. And when you think you've found them, you then get access to your full reveal action, which is just this hilarious, strange mini game that just kicks off the game and makes it so that like... The recruiter just has a little bit of extra time to sort of wander around and, and gives you a sort of like red herring you have to chase before you can do anything else. It's so... It's, oh, it's delightful. It's so funny and stupid to be the team of people hunting the recruiter. It's like, where's the recruiter? Oh, they could be over here. It's like, oh, wait, we haven't found the Dreamwalker. We have to cross town looking for the Dreamwalker. And it's like <laughs> this secondary character who just by dint of these tokens looking so stupid gains so much character and so much like... They're so hateable. It's like, oh, the Dreamwalker, no! <laughs> and then every time you're asking, narrowing that square, it's like, have we found the Dreamwalker? No. It's, it, and you have to place another of these stupid tokens. Like, but yeah. like, but this is, I, you know, we, I know we've just started talking about the Dreamwalker. I want to move on. I want to tell people what's in the first pack if the, the Seeking team lose. And we should say that this was the first pack that we had where we were, we were slightly worried that it was going to be a bit dull because the Seeking team gets an ally card. It's basically just a little bonus that you get. And we were worried that the first pack was just going to be, you get a new ally card. It does a new thing. But no. Quinns, tell the people about the first thing. Tom, you unlock a psychic tripwire. That, that should be accompanied by some kind of guitar squeal. Um, it's <laughs> just like, as soon as we opened the pack and saw what it was, we were like, oh, this is so cool. So the Seeking team get to, as part of a move action, it's not even deployed on the board at the start of the game. At any point during the game, when any player moves, they can be like, psychic tripwire. 
and they throw these <laughs> lightning tokens across the whole board, creating like a, basically a dragnet a, in any shape that they want. So you could cut the board in half, you could cut in a square, you could do a wonky S. But then every other turn, the player who's hiding, the recruiter, has to tell you how many times they crossed the psychic tripwire, which is just such a... It's a fun tool, it's thematic, it's stupid, just like the Dreamwalker. Like, and it's so, there are so many things you could do with it. Immediately my head started spinning for the possibilities and it just made me so excited to play my next game of mind management. And also that it just came at such a nice time because you ran rings around me before I was able to unlock that. Like I had this super <laughs> horrible game where I had no idea where you were for 45 minutes. And then afterwards the game went, hey, have a psychic tripwire. And I said, <laughs> oh, thank you so much, mind management. I'm so I'm ready. I'm rejuvenated. I'm ready to catch this person. I think it's really telling as well that the thing that, I think there's a really important distinction here where the thing that's tempting us to play the next game of mind management is what we've unlocked rather than the thrill of unlocking something new. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In legacy games, I'm it, well. It's I think that's a great point. Like when you play legacy board games, so much of it's like, oh, what's in the next packet? In mind management, you're not playing to see what's in the next packet. You're playing to play with what was in the last packet. You know, it's it's yeah. a much more positive experience. And then at the end, it's like, oh, oh, and we get to unlock a new thing. It's like a surprise because you've just had this joyous game testing out this new toy, and then another one is going to get sort of like dumped into your lap. But like it's a game that like even the base game is is great the fact that they're adding in these new weird things and the fact that you have choice over which you want to use right yeah so it's basically a handicap system where you don't have to play with all 14 expansions when you've unlocked them all although you can i think that and i'm sure have an absolutely <laughs> fascinating time um but no rather it's like the side that has lost the most decides how many shift packs to use and then if they decide to use say two shift packs then the other side might get to use one or two but both sides get to kind of pick which expansions they want really it's like being batman and like deciding what goes in your utility belt i don't know if batman decides what goes in his utility belt he might just have all the things all the time um, i think alfred decides that oh alfred does it uh, mm, yeah I, he I packs his, does packs his lunch right and um, decides puts, what puts in the yeah like, he's like stuff. i've given you i've given you uh, wait i can't do this isn't true and it's not well but i did cut you off before you're gonna do an alfred impression give that to our audience no well please. you know what you've denied the listeners <laughs> the alfred impression. uh yeah so there's gonna be lots more coverage of mind management in future um but we don't really need to do a podcast outro now tom because the only people listening are people who submitted themselves to to spoilers so we yeah don't... to the to the loosey-goosey spoiler chat should we instead um, give a nice compliment to the people who were brave or bold enough to 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 sit down and hear some hot hot spoilers i think that the people i mean not to insult the listeners right now at their moment of trial you're gonna call but... them the worst half of our listeners 